Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to do exactly what this show is all about to go beyond politics to talk about an issue that we both care about and that touches the hearts of all of us. Today, at least 44 Americans are being held hostage or wrongfully detained abroad. There's no more vexing, heartbreaking challenge that American leaders face or that the families of those Americans could face. Our guest today is someone who's become a leader, an expert on this situation, though not for uh, for reasons that any of us would ever have chosen. Diane Foley is the mother of five children, including American freelance conflict journalist James W. Foley, known to his friends and family as Jim. She founded the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation in September 2014, less than a month after his public execution. Diane is currently serving as the president of the foundation, and since 2014, she has helped lead their efforts to fund the start of Hostage USA and the International Alliance for a Culture of Safety, ACOS. Jim uh, was a proud son of New Hampshire. At least we're happy to call him ours, though he came originally from Illinois, and he was a brave journalist, and his legacy lives on in this foundation and its critical work to advocate for the safety of Americans held abroad and especially promote the safety of journalists. Diane Foley, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you so much. So uh, let's jump right in. Most Americans feel like they recognize Jim's name and may know some of his story. But can you tell us tell us some more about him? Why? Why was he driven to report in conflict zones and 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 in Syria, especially what what was his mission? Well, Jim was an an avid reader um, and um, loved history. He was very interested in the world, in other cultures. In um, so he was a teacher um, before he became a journalist, but really felt called to bear witness to the plight of civilians amid conflict of the Arab Spring in 2011, 2012, you know, the, the hope um, of these people who had, had have endured such oppression really in their lives. So he was feeling like he was bearing witness to history in the making, if you will, and felt a, a strong com- commitment to um, letting the world know what was going on. Because of the increasing danger, more and more, um, had pulled out of the Middle East, and thus more and more freelancers like Jim um, had moved into this void of news, actually. Those of us who are parents, and you're the mother of five, uh, I'm the father of three, so we can only imagine what you went through during the period when your son was held. When Americans are held overseas, it's surprising, and, and I discovered this as a congressional staffer working on cases of Americans wrongfully detained overseas back when I worked for Paul, when I worked for other members of Congress. It's surprising how limited the help from the U.S. government can be. Can you tell us more about working with the government at that time? What did they offer to your family that was helpful or effective? And 
what were some of the things that the government could and should have been able to do better? Well, to be honest, my interaction um, with the government was disappointing. I, I had no idea about how the government worked, but I tended to believe whatever I was told. And I guess the, the biggest problem was um, the fact that um, there was no um, coordinated effort to try to bring Jim home. And I was often at times even mis misled um, about what our government was able to do. I was often told that Jim never the case. And actually, uh, um, President Obama's strong stance against him was never going to enter into any negotiation um, on his behalf. So I, it was a very disappointing um, time. Um, and that is why we started the Foley Foundation, because there was a need to improve um, this. It was really appalling in many ways. Were you working mostly with the State Department or, or was that part of the problem that it, that it wasn't really clear which branch of the government you should most be interfacing with? That is the case, Matt. Um, in his first brief captivity in Libya, it was clear that it was um, the State Department. But actually, Jim got out of that situation through uh, uh, the uh, owner of the Atlantic Media, David Bradley, and his research. He's the one that enabled that um, uh, his freedom in that regard. But the second time, um, FBI was the lead, but they did not coordinate with State Department. So it was very confusing about who was doing what and if anyone was doing anything, to be honest, Matt. So it was a very um, discouraging time, um, except for family and other people outside of government trying to support us. Were, did you reach out during that time to members of Congress or the Senate? Oh, yes. Not so much Congress, to be honest. Um, I didn't know who to reach out to. I you know, we were assigned an FBI agent who recommended that we talk to President Assad. Um, he just had no understanding of the situation there at all. Um, did not speak Arabic. Uh, was very um, frightening, actually. Um, and at State Department, we always met with different people. Different people. They're always kind, very patronizing to me, but never told me anything. Um, I did reach out to um, Senator Ayotte and Shaheen, and they were very supportive, um, did get me in touch with um, UN and other people, but um, really didn't know how to guide me, if you will. Um, it, I really um, struggled. I, I quit my job um, and started going to Washington full time um, towards the end of Jim's captivity, just trying to find someone who could advocate for Jim. But I wasn't really ever able to find anyone during his captivity. Hmm. Did 
did anybody explain or talk to you at the time about the political situation and i use that in in the in the largest sense the political situation in syria because at the time things were very tumultuous and unknown and various of the of the extremist groups were in fact uh, having their own civil civil war it was a very very unsettled situation to say the least um were you ever did anybody ever really debrief you about about those kinds of issues and what was going on and how deep the the various occurrence of uh, occurrence were in 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 the places where jim was held well, I was very aware of that on my own. And yes, at one point, someone from State Department um, gave us some information, but we also did our own research. So we were very made, we were very aware that this was a conflict zone, very aware that we had no diplomatic relations with Syria, um, very aware we were told that there were really no CIA or anybody um, in country. But the one thing we were not told about, Paul, was, was the whole idea that President Obama was, was very against negotiating with terrorists. So the FBI's hands were tied. Um, even when the captors reached out to us, FBI agents were not able to interact directly with captors. That all of it was left up to us as a family to try to figure out how to um, negotiate, if you will, with the captors. So um, that piece should have been obvious to me, I guess, you know, because our government wasn't, I mean, government officials were not allowed to directly interact. So I should have surmised it perhaps, but it was never clearly um, articulated to me. If anything, the opposite was told, I was told the opposite, that Jim was their highest priority. Um, so it was, in that sense, very confusing. But so let's talk a little bit about the work of the foundation. So part of your mission at the foundation is conducting research to ensure that hostage policy, U.S. hostage policy, is actually prioritizing the return of our citizens held abroad and assisting their families so that people are not as it sounds like you found yourself in the position of, of doing, sort of having to invent all these wheels and forge all these channels on their own. And you also work on how to engage and, and how to make all these institutions in the federal government engage, the Congress, the White House, the FBI, the Department of State, to push for improvements in US hostage policy. So. What has the foundation advocated for in recent years that the U.S. government needs to do better? I have some guesses based on your experience, but what, what has that agenda been? Well, the, the uh, best thing, the most exciting thing was um, President Obama realized um, too late for Jim and the other six Americans at that time who were held hostage, but he at the end at the end of his um, uh, time as president, he issued a, a, host, a total U.S. hostage policy review, 
which was both internal and external. So it included hostage families like ourselves, what we had gone through. Um, the National Counterterrorism Center did an excellent job, took a lot of time really listening to families like myself and others who had gone through this and issued a presidential policy directive number 30 in June of 2015. And that was really outstanding in that it called for the um, restructuring of the way our government um, seeks to bring Americans home, if you will. It established a interagency hostage fusion cell, a special presidential envoy for hostage affairs, and a hostage recovery group at the National Security Council and White House level. So that was a huge step forward, Matt. And I'm very grateful to the Obama administration for putting that in place and for the Trump administration for continuing the, the that presidential policy directive. Um, I was on the Foley Foundation within three weeks of Jim's murder. We became very active in all of that effort to make sure that that um, was put in place. And we have continued that advocacy um, through our annual research reports. We annually interview hostage families, returned hostages to see where the gaps are where um, the government needs to improve their interaction with families, their transparency, um, and also how NGOs like ourselves can fill in gaps. Because the, the truth is that getting Americans home when taken hostage or wrongfully detained is very complex work. It um, requires a lot of very shrewd diplomacy. It um, is is very complicated. So the government can't do it all in truth. I mean, um, the government's job to me, in my opinion, is to prioritize the return and to facilitate all that the government can do, but it also requires other people outside of government, I feel. So that is our job, part of our job anyway, is to work with Congress to help make public and, and our own government more aware of the rising number of Americans for the number 44 is just the tip of a quite large iceberg, we feel, because there are thousands of Americans detained every year by other governments. And we really don't know how many are unjustly or wrongfully detained. Wow. Um, that's a pretty staggering thought to consider. Um, because while, as you've just said, 44 is sort of the public number of hostages that we know about, thinking about the way that number is uh, relates to the thousands of other detentions by both foreign by both for established foreign governments and then other groups which we may not even know about is is a pretty staggering consideration um i i have two questions um first i i, I and forgive me for my ignorance i had not heard of the national center for counterterrorism and i'm curious where that is it an agency and where does it sit in the uh, structure of our federal government? Um, is it allied with the State Department uh, or is it is it its own separate uh, agency? Um, 
it was established after 9-11 and it's quite robust. I mean, it is, um, it's in Virginia. Where is it? Is it in McLean perhaps? It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's its own entity. And that is why President Obama chose, uh, they initially tried to do this evaluation within their own government, within the White House, if you will. But they finally realized they needed an outside expertise to look at both inside government and outside government and how, why everything was, um, worked so poorly in regard to the five Americans who were killed in that time frame, murdered abroad, if you will. So I think it was a very wise choice to go outside. Um, I think that took some humility and, and um, courage to do that. And I'm very grateful. I really am. I'm very grateful for that. And um, things have continued to move forward in that recently the Robert Levinson family, another hostage, a gentleman who served for many years in our in our own CIA, um, uh, was taken hostage and never recovered. So their family, the Robert Levinson Act, was just passed on a bipartisan basis. And this will mandate that the State Department actually has to name look at the thousands of Americans detained each year and figure out who in fact is wrongfully or unjustly detained. And that'll be a very important step because our fear is that the number is so much higher than this 44. Um, there, we find new families in need of help every other day. I mean, this is a much bigger problem than we ever imagined. One of the things that strikes me in in hearing your experience and as you talk about the complication here is that there are many sort of subset problems to deal with. It, it, it is truly a very complex situation. There are instances where, as Jim uh, experienced, Americans might be held by terrorist groups, by non-government groups. There are also instances where Americans might be wrongly detained and it might be part of a judicial system, but one that doesn't follow actual transparent judicial procedures um, that allows for families to pursue family vendettas um, or governments to detain people for political purposes. Have you done work on trying to think through those complexities and the, the many different ways that the U.S. government might have to approach those different situations. Absolutely, Matthew. That's what makes it so complicated. Um, you know, and, I, and I, I think my feeling is that our government has a sacred obligation, if you will, to protect the life and liberty of American citizens. And um, so this could have truly happen to any person. 
It could happen to a tourist. It could happen to a student going on a year abroad or a research um, graduate student. It has happened to all of those categories. It isn't only journalists. It could happen to um, you know any international um, affairs person or a businessman doing international work. So I feel that our government needs to find ways to negotiate in the myriad of, in the complexity that it is, because it's certainly complicated. But to just plain say we will not negotiate with certain groups like they did in Jim's case is to tell them, is to truly abandon them. Because if, if our government just cannot use the resources of our diplomats, our you know, in, intelligence groups to figure out how to engage, um, for one thing, we lose a lot of understanding about what we're up against. Like if our government, if um, FBI and CIA had truly engaged in the four Americans who were held in that time frame by ISIS, they would have found out a lot about what was going on with ISIS, what in fact they wanted, what what their um, uh, interests were, if you will. Um, just plain the engagement itself would have given our government a lot of information. But by choosing not to engage at all, um, there, there's no chance for the hostage to come, home, to come home and we miss out on, on gleaning information about people who take our citizens, if you will. So I don't certainly don't have all the answers, Matthew. All I know is I feel our government with all the talented folks in both the State Department and other branches of government need to prioritize and use the most shrewd approaches. Our enemies certainly do. They know how to, the, the captors certainly know how to do this. And I think Americans can do this also. We, sh we must. I, I feel like we um, need to do this. So um, that is what we, we as, in, aspire to inspire moral courage. We feel our uh, government needs to have the moral courage to find ways to look at this ever-growing problem and solve it, if you will. Diane, we've talked a little bit about some of the positive changes uh, that have resulted from your advocacy. And it sounds like there are some ways things are headed in a more effective direction with more uh, coordination and more awareness. And you've pointed out that both under uh, Presidents Obama and Trump, uh, things are moving in somewhat a more effective uh, direction. And we talked a little bit about um, uh, the, the need to treat different cases uh, differently, because right now there remains controversy uh, over U.S. government policy on hostages. Other countries pay ransoms. It is usual for us to hear of European countries paying ransoms to free their citizens. Um, this goes beyond the issue of, in a way, of negotiating, but it is contained within that that question around um, negotiating. Uh, the U.S. government refuses to pay uh, ransom. Is that something that should change? 
Well, I don't feel the, the, the hard part about paying ransom, obviously, is that you might encourage more hostage taking um, and you're going to, you know, do exactly what the captors want. So that is not necessarily the answer at all. But I do feel that our government needs to prioritize the return of our citizens by engaging with captors. And sometimes it's by saying that we will not engage with the government, such as the question, should we really engage with Iran while they're holding a number of American citizens? That's, that's a question that is it morally right? for us to decrease sanctions in Iran when they continue to take our citizens and dual nationals. Um, that in that way, looking at that and prioritizing the fact that we're not gonna deal with people, with governments that hold our citizens. Um, many of our citizens are being held in Egypt. That's another example, Russia. Um, you know, there are many situations where we could refuse to engage um, with them unless they release our citizens. There's other situations where we need to find out ways to negotiate and be shrewd about what they're looking for. I think ransom is only one aspect. And yes, it is one aspect that a lot of times some captors want. Certainly terrorist criminal groups tend to want ransom. It's of note that domestically, when... Um, people take our citizens or hold them captive, our treasury does in fact pay ransoms in domestic cases. And I think, so, you know, ransom is used sometimes in the, in the case of when our citizens are held, and, and that is the case domestically. But we've made a decision as a government that we will not use that in negotiating with terrorists. Is that right or wrong? I mean, that is something our government needs to look at. Um, but I do feel it's only one means of negotiation. There are many others. Sanctions is another one. You know, um, freezing funds, not engaging. There's many other ways to interact with people who take our citizens. So, Diane, your answer kind of brings me up short. I mean, we've just lived through January 6th. We've seen uh, what happens when domestic extremists are emboldened, um, in this case, attacking the Capitol in a murderous insurrection. But when you have your answer to the last question, you talked about domestic terrorists holding uh, holding Americans hostage and uh, negotiations and ransom being paid. Can you elaborate for us a little bit about the state of of domestic terrorism and 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 any Americans that are held by domestic groups? Is that is that what you're talking about? Well, it is. But however, that is not an area that I know much about because the focus of our work are citizens who are held in, in internationally. So taken hostage abroad. 
Um, domestically, we have a very different policy, though. Um, the FBI directly negotiates with domestic terrorists. Um, if you look back historically, and we do, you know, we take a lot of time to use um, Gary Nesner was um, the head of the Terrorism Negotiation Center for many, many years, and he's written several books about it. So our FBI has a lot of expertise in negotiating um, with people who terrorize within our country and finding ways to free hostages. And I guess what I'm, I'm asking our government to do is to use similar, our similar talents and expertise in these complex international kidnappings. I want to touch on one aspect of Jim's case and of the foundation's work, which is the fact that he was a journalist. Um, this is something that touches me personally. My father was an overseas conflict zone journalist. He was actually um, captured briefly by Idi Amin in Uganda in the course of his reporting and somehow shrewdly uh, managed to, to work his way out of that situation. Many journalists detained abroad do not. What are the special considerations, the special challenges that go with the entire issue of journalists reporting in conflict zones overseas? And what does the foundation advocate for, especially when it comes to the safety and release of journalists? I appreciate that question, Matt, because I feel that the best of journalists are our way to know the truth. Um, these days, there's a lot of disinformation, a lot of confusion about what is the truth. And I feel that the best journalists dig hard, whether it's domestically or, or by going into really dangerous zones internationally. But to be honest, to um, go deep into many of our issues domestically has become equally um, dangerous with it um, because we have a lot of online trolling and, um, and the disinformation. We have a lot of safety issues brought on by the internet, if you will, and such a different way of reporting. So we have um, developed two types of preventative safety curricula, one from undergraduate and one for graduate journalist students. And what we're trying to accomplish is we want every single aspiring journalist to have basic safety um, education to know how to assess the risk of whatever topic they're seeking to investigate, whether, like I say, it's domestic or international, and to really know how to protect themselves with digital safety also, to really know the ways that people can um, follow you and um, terrorize you, really, as a, as a truth seeker. Um, we also, as, as journalists, have a responsibility to protect sources, to protect vulnerable people who are sharing their experience. So we're very passionate about um, this preventative safety education, and we're really hoping in the future to um, make it grow so that we, we, it's totally free. 
So we have several um, universities that work with us who are uh, who share it with um, students interested in political science, international affairs, and such, because we're seeking to create a culture of safety for anyone who is doing risky work, and certainly the work of journalists today can be um, very risky work. You know, I, um, Diane, I have a close uh, family, family friend, um, the son of uh, the son of dear friends, you know, a, a young man that we we basically grew up with um, who has uh, chosen a career as a um, as an independent uh, photojournalist overseas and has taken himself to uh, conflict zones. Um, he, wa- he was for quite a while um, living in um, uh, East Sudan, I think it was, and uh, traveling around Somalia and Sudan during a period of really serious conflict. Um, he did at, at one point um, go get in and out of Syria. Um, and, and he was, uh, he was trying to build his career as an independent photojournalist, uh, at, at the time uh, with, as far as I could tell, um, no, no exterior training, uh, no resources to support him other than his wits, um, and his camera. I mean, he's a smart smart, dedicated, passionate person. I'm curious whether in addition to the education programs that you have talked about at universities, uh, there are uh, programs or efforts um, being made to educate uh, and support uh, journalists who may be uh, out in the field as we speak doing this really important work because this is work that 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 lets the world know what's going on in places we would not otherwise have any access to so it's it's vital it's vital work um from the point of view of journalism and education and letting and and raising the world's consciousness about what's going on. But I'm wondering if there's any what if any kind of support or education is available to folks who are doing the work. Absolutely, Paul, you're making a huge point. And actually, that was one of the. Uh, things we did within the year after Jim died is we helped found this Alliance for a Culture of Safety. And what that is, is it's a coalition of press freedom groups, media groups, and freelancers. Because there are more and more freelance journalists like your friend's son um, these days um, because print journalism has just plain decreased. And so more and more of the news and photos we get are from independent journalists who do not have um, the security safety net. They do. They often don't have access to um, hostile environment first aid training. They um, often have no um, 
health insurance, for example, um, kidnapping insurance, none of that sort of thing. So that's why we started established this international coalition. So through this coalition, ACOS, we annually support um, freelancers so that they can afford to go to the four and five day hostile environment training. Um, we have gotten media companies to help pay for this. It's expensive training and it's training that's difficult to access if you're an independent journalist because it takes time and a lot of money to um, have the training. But we are working very hard to promote that training and to promote insurance for freelancers as well as security um, input. Because you're right, um, these freelancers need to um, be able to access security experts about what countries they're going to, what they might encounter. That's all part of their risk assessment, if you will. So we work very hard with the Committee to Protect Journalists, Reporters Without Borders, many of the other press freedom groups within this Alliance for Culture of Safety, because uh, you're absolutely right, there's a real need for this. So through a coalition like this, we're able to help a lot more um, freelancers, if you will, to have access to that, those resources. Another part of your mission is to raise awareness about specific cases. And as Paul mentioned at the top of the show that you've released a report highlighting the at least 44 Americans that are in that position of being unjustly detained uh, abroad. Are there any cases that you'd like to highlight here for our listeners where that, where that kind of publicity would be helpful to their situation? Uh, anyone you'd like to, to talk about? Oh goodness, Paul! There are there are so many. Um, you know, there's two very poignant cases in Syria right now. There's this young Texan, Austin Tice, who's been held now nearly ten years. Uh, Georgetown Law student, very talented young man, um, Maj Kamalmas, Dr. Kamalmas was a psycho, is a psychotherapist helping people in refugee zones who went to visit a family member in Syria and was just taken. Um, we have, uh, you know, the Sitco Six, if you will, who are the Sitco executives from Southern part of the United States, Louisiana and Texas, who were lured to Venezuela and then taken hostage. We have, you know, Pastor um, Jeffrey Woodkey, who was taken in Niger. Um, we have two um, of our citizens being held in Russia right now. But the other problem we've encountered is that even when our citizens are able to come home, what they say that what they face after four or five years in in detention is appalling. Um, you know, the IRS goes after them. Why haven't they paid their taxes? Um, you know, loans or rent or bills or, you know, there's much work to be done to support traumatized citizens when they, in fact, are thankfully able to come home. So we have much work to do, um, Matt, to be honest. We have um, 12 um, uh, hostages who have asked for advocacy who are on our um, website at um, jamesfoleyfoundation.org. Um, so some of those cases people can go to and learn more. 
and also our annual report when we talk about anonymously about the issues they're facing. But there's a lot to do, if you will. Uh, it's, a, it's clearly a lifetime of work uh, and very, very important work. Um, you know, I, I keep thinking about our, 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 our military where the code, the military code is um, leave, leave no one behind. Uh, it's a very clear imperative uh, in the military. And um, your work has just done so much uh, to to change uh, the culture in the United States government and uh, hopefully the code about the way we approach these very, very intricate and challenging situations. Um, I'm sure that our listeners who, who have heard this program uh, will be moved and inspired uh, to want to help and to do something. Um, uh, I'd like to tell you that we have um, uh, millions of listeners, but I sometimes joke and say our dozens of listeners, I'm sure. We'll we have be, at least 10,000 a day, Paul. Don't undersell. <laughs> will be moved to want to uh, to help what can people do who are touched by the stories you've you've told and and what we've heard from you how do you advise that they take action what's the best what's the what's the best and biggest thing people people can do and uh, how would you like them to to reach out and and just what what can folks do well, I thank you so very much for that question, because our tagline is inspiring moral courage in every American and anyone who's listening. Let us not leave behind abandoned Americans who are out in the world because we need to be out in the world, hopefully bringing peace and, and some help to other parts of the world. So I don't think the answer is to stay home at all. I, I think we really, the world needs our expertise, compassion, and goodness out in the world. But I would invite anyone um, to become a friend of the James Foley Legacy Foundation. Um, one could find out more information by watching a documentary called Jim, the James Foley story. Um, it is on HBO, um, Amazon, uh, YouTube, it's everywhere. Um, but that would help you understand some of what our situation was like. And um, we would greatly appreciate anyone who wants to join us in our annual freedom run. Um, there are many ways people can, um, first of all, just learn about the issue. I was so ignorant about the fact that Americans are taken hostage, kidnapped abroad, and until it came home to me. So I would ask anyone listening to please learn about this issue and um, protect um, help us protect fellow citizens who go out into the world on our behalf and, and help us bring them home. I would just be deeply grateful. 
Diane, thank you so much for joining us on Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, uh, Matt Robeson. Uh, we've been speaking with Diane Foley, the president, founder of the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation, working at so many different levels to help Americans uh, who are um, uh, taken uh, abroad, who are detained abroad. Thank you, Diane, for your work. And folks, if you're listening to this on our podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends about Beyond Politics. We'll be, be back next week with another show. Thanks so much.